So normally when I preach, I usually um, start by kind of telling a story from uh, Aotearoa, a story from our nation, because we've got such a, a rich history in our nation, such a rich history with God in our nation. Um, but what I thought I'd do, I thought I'd do something a little bit different this morning, whereas I thought I'd tell a bit of a background story to uh, Nehemiah, which is the series that we've been looking at, um, because I think for us to fully understand and appreciate what was happening uh, with Nehemiah and the situation of being able to have the opportunity for the Israelites to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem to rebuild those walls, I think you, we really need to know the history behind it to have a, a much better appreciation for what happened. And not only just for us to appreciate the story, but um, when we're learning about the Jewish people in the Bible, that's actually our history. You know, that, that is our whakapapa as well. Our genealogy goes back uh, through them as well. And um, we hear what... Um, What Paul says, he says, in other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the, of the that should be promise, of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. In Galatians it says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And that looks like another spelling mistake, <laughs> according to the promise. <laughs> well, we could be herbs, I guess. But <laughs> It's a good start, isn't it? And heirs, that's the heirs. I've got it written down here. Not herbs. Oh, there we go. So when we do look back, I, I think it's really exciting to see that we're actually learning about our own history when we look back in the Old Testament. That when we can see how faithful God was uh, to the people of Israel, to the Jews, we see how faithful he is to us. Because this is our family, this is where we're from, this is our roots as well. So, I'm going to take a little ticky tour back uh, through the Old Testament a little bit. It's going to be real rough and, rough and quick, so uh, a lot of the stories you'll probably want to, in your own time, go back over again. Um, but let's go, go through this. The first man we want to look at is Abraham. Now, Abraham, uh, God gave these amazing promises to Abraham. Abraham, who we all, all descend from. He gave these amazing promises to Abraham about the promised land. The Lord has, hopefully there's no more spelling mistakes in this. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, remember, these are promises that were given to our tupuna. They were given to our ancestors. So these are promises that we can take for ourselves as well. But this was the first promise, one of the first promises that God gave to Abraham. He gave other promises. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So we can see through the promises that God gives to Abraham, a lot of it is associated with land, isn't it? And the first one he says, first of all, he says, go to this land that I've promised for you, and then all this other stuff can happen. And this one, it's quite, uh, very, closely associated, very closely associated with land as well. He says, um, we'll give your descendants these lands. So later on when we go back to Nehemiah and we see that they've been taken from this land, we can see that somehow they probably feel that those promises might have been taken from them as well. We can see that this land is very closely associated with the promises that God had for them. So Abraham goes with his, with his people and they, they, they get to this land of Canaan and they make that their home. As we continue with the story through the Old Testament, a famine hits the land of Canaan 
and uh, one of their own, an Israelite, who ends up being in the land of Egypt through means that he probably doesn't, never wanted, we're talking about Joseph here, he is able to establish a way that the Israelites can then come to Egypt and be safe. He makes a way for food for the Israelites so that this famine doesn't uh, impact them in such an intense way. Then later on, uh, we have Moses as well, that um, the people they uh, have been in Egypt for a while and the Egyptians end up turning them into slaves. All this horrible stuff is happening. Uh, he began, the Egyptian pharaoh begins to kill off the firstborn of the Israelites and it's, it's terrible, this horrible stuff is happening. But then God calls Moses and what does he say to Moses at the burning bush? The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so Moses goes back to Egypt and ends up leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And after many years in the desert of them, you know, they twittering around in the desert because they're not listening to God. Eventually, the Israelites end up back in this promised land, this land that you imagine them getting back to this promised land and suddenly all these promises that God has given Abraham begins coming flooding back that they will be able to impact the rest of the nation. And it's really exciting. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, now, Dad started uh, Nehemiah 1 for us and he began to say what it was that kind of separated the people of Israel from the rest of the people in that time. So he said the first thing that they had was that they had the presence of God was with them. They had the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God rested with the people of Israel, was with the people. And secondly, they had Jerusalem, which was the heart of this people who had an extraordinary calling and an extraordinary purpose. So this is an amazing time for, for them. And you think that, you know, they've been finally led back to Israel. Jerusalem is there. God is with them. You know, they're ready now to fulfill those promises, aren't they, to go and impact the rest of, of the world and the rest of, yeah, the rest of Tiao. But instead, what, what you've got is you've got all these kings who begin to come in and start doing bad things amongst the Israelites who lead the Israelites. And, you know, what it says uh, that um, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And to be honest, it probably wasn't just evil in the sight of the Lord. Anyone can see that what they were doing was pretty bad, you know, sacrificing their kids. And it got really dark. So in the end, God says, well, that's enough. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish you now because you, you're not listening to me. The prophets are there. Uh, Jeremiah is there talking, saying, you've got to come back to God. Um, and God says in the end, that's enough. So what you have is you have uh, the first invasion of, um, of the Babylonian Empire. So on the left, we have King Nebuchadnezzar II. Now, something I found is that the Babylonian kings all have awesome names, like Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> and on the other side, the Israelites have probably not so awesome names. Uh, where we've got King Jehoiakim, which is not as cool as Nebuchadnezzar. But the Babylonian Empire was an empire that was kind of the superpower of the day. Um, and, and Israel at the time, they were kind of under the protection of Egypt. So what happened was the Babylonians came, they attacked Egypt, they defeated Egypt. And so all those other little states that were kind of under Egyptian, Egypt's kind of protection, they then turned to Babylon and were under the Babylonians' protection. But King Jehoiakim, instead of gracefully giving in to the Babylonians, he kind of thought he'd pull a sneaky one and decided that he was just going to stop uh, sending money because they, they used to be kind of be taxed and they'd send their, their crops back to Babylon and money back to Babylon. And so King Jehoiakim thought he'd pull a fast one and stop that and just see what would happen. And it was not a smart move from Jehoiakim. 
So the Babylonians come to Jerusalem, surround Jerusalem, and they take King Jehoiakim away back to Babylon. And not only do they take Jehoiakim with them, but you might have heard of a few other names that they take, like Daniel they take back to Babylon at this time. Um, they basically take anyone who is intelligent or the richest people from Jerusalem. They take them all in this first time back to Babylon. So Ezekiel's there as well. Um, and so, that, yeah, that's the first part. But um, even though they've been taken away, you have Jeremiah the prophet who's still back in Jerusalem sending them letters saying, don't worry, this has happened, but God will restore you. God will bring you back. Um, and often it's easy for us to read those scriptures and say, oh, at least the Israelites knew they were coming back. But for a people who had not been living the way God had told them to, who were clapped up in chains, would you really be believing that? <laughs> I don't know if, if that would be in our heads as we're being walked off going, oh, that's all right, I'm coming back soon. Yeah. It's not quite probably what was in their heads. They'd probably be really terrified at the things that were going on. So after Jehoiakim, we have another king who's a son called Jehoiah. Oh, that's Donald Jeremiah. We have Jehoiachin. <laughs> yeah. So Jehoiachin, he was actually only king of uh, Judah for three months. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, actually, this is the son of the guy who actually rebelled against me. Let's get rid of this guy. So Jehoiachin, he got, he's only got one slide, I'm afraid. He's very sad. He gets kicked out pretty quickly. So then we have Zedekiah. Now Zedekiah, um, he became king of um, became king of Judah, and it also says about him that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now uh, Jeremiah the prophet, who was still there at the time, was constantly saying to Zedekiah, "Look, you, what are you doing? You've got to cha- change what you're doing. You've seen what's happened. If this keeps happening, then uh, you guys are going to end up. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, and you'll be taken back to Babylon." But Zedekiah doesn't listen. Again, he is a king who does evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, when you're reading two kings, you come across a very kind of a very sad verse that I, I found about Zedekiah. Um, so Zedekiah is kind of doing his own thing, and then uh, so he's on the side of Babylon at the time, still being this kind of the state that's giving money to Babylon. And then you come across at the end of two kings twenty four, you get this very sad sentence which said, "Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon," and you can imagine Jeremiah just being like, "What are you doing?" And unfortunately, the Babel, like you just know things are going to go wrong from that sentence. It's really hard. It's, honestly, at the end of 24, it's just this one very sad, lonely sentence at the end. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He comes back to, Babylon, uh, to Jerusalem, surrounds the city, and starves out the city of Jerusalem. Zedekiah, being the amazing king that he was, he retreats with his army, and, and they, they leave the women and children and the people of Jerusalem there, and him and his army run away. What an amazing man. So they run away. The Babylonians go, hang on a minute. Like They've surrounded the city. They know he's gone <laughs> pretty quick. They chase him down, catch Zedekiah. It's not very nice. They kill his sons in front of him, gouge out his eyes, take him back to Babylon, and that's all you hear about him. But it, not just that, but then the Babylonians come, they just absolutely obliterate Jerusalem. They come in, they set fire to everything. Temples being torn down. The people are enslaved. And again, you, you think everyone now has been taken back to Babylon, and you think... Yes, they do have these amazing promises of Jeremiah. We know the story. We know how it ends. So we know it's a good ending. Oh, yeah, people of faith, they should have held on to those promises of God. Not so easy when you've been taken away in chains. People are being killed and you're being let off, not knowing what's going to happen. And not just that, but the people that hadn't been living with God, the people have been doing evil in the sight of the Lord as well. So for them to turn around and be like, well, we haven't been following God, but we're still going to trust his promises, just doesn't really make sense, does it? So as they're being led off, 
It's heartbreaking. All those amazing promises that God had given to Abraham that were linked through the land, linked through Jerusalem, all those promises are suddenly gone. They're probably thinking, wow, we had this amazing opportunity to do, to, you know, we were supposed to be God's chosen people to impact nations, but suddenly all those promises that God has given to them as a people are gone. And you can just imagine the heartbreak of that going, well, that's it. That's us. Now, the Babylonians, they were not a nice group of people. They were actually a really terrible group of people who did terrible things. So they've been taken away to this horrible, terrible land as slaves. Now, what we get to look at next is I've done a... We're going to go through... Because often when we think of the Israelites at this time in uh, the land of Babylon, we think that, oh, yeah, it was all good. They went through this stuff. It was horrible. But actually, like, when we look at it, heaps happened in that short time period. I've been doing a little bit of a, a squiz back over some of the history things. And it's not just like an easy... Or, you know, they just work for however many years, then God takes them back. They go through some intense times. So they, have, go, through, they go through 11 kings, all right, in the time they're there, and two of the world's massive superpowers rule them while the time they're there. So the first king we have is we have uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the one we've seen before, takes the um, Israelites away. Now, for some strange reason that I don't quite understand, he ends up making... You see the favor of God through the people of Israel in this time that they're away, because... In that same time that Nebuchadnezzar takes away the people of Israel, what does he do? He makes Daniel one of his head guys, an, a, a Jew. Why, why has he done that? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into this three-year apprenticeship as training to be one of the top guys. You think, God? Was your hand in this the whole time? Yes, it was. We can see God's hand over the people of Israel. Then you have another king, Amel Marduk. Great names from the Babylonian kings. Neriglissa. Labashi Marduk, which is a great one, Marduk. Not so cool, Nabonidus, that's about an average one. Um, Nabonidus, he was a bit of a random guy, and he kind of got rid of the, the main Babylonian god at the time, so the people really didn't like him, and he kind of went on this massive hikoi around different lands, and so ended up wasn't really the king for long. But then we have Belshazzar, and you might recognize Belshazzar from the Bible, who is the guy who, uh, do you remember God uh, came and wrote on, on the wall while they're having this feast, and God wrote saying that this is going to be the end of the Babylonian Empire, which Daniel interprets. Uh, so that's Belshazzar. Then we have this guy here, uh, King Darius. Um, also, people aren't sure. There's actually no historical evidence that Darius existed. But there was Cyrus who came after him. So people think that maybe Darius was, I don't know, a Hebrew name for uh, Cyrus. They're not too sure. But um, there you go. <laughs> so Cyrus, he was um, pretty amazing. Um, I mean, first of all, he actually um, he brings out that decree, doesn't he, saying that people can no longer pray to God, they have to pray to him. Um, man, you see how the enemy tries to wipe out the religion, tries to wipe out faith, wipe out God, but it just backfires constantly through their time here. So they make this decree saying, you guys are not going to pray to anyone anymore, but you're just going to pray to me. And what happens? Well, Daniel gets thrown away. He keeps praying. It's not going to stop him. He keeps praying, thrown into the lions and overcomes it and then comes out and then Darius actually begins to acknowledge God as being, the, being one of his gods. You think, man, what a change around is happening there. And Cyrus or slash Darius, he's also the one who for the first time he allows the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem um, where he sends a small group back so that they can rebuild the temple back in Jerusalem. We then have this guy, <laughs> and we have Artaxerxes. Um, Artaxerxes, 
he begins to get told rumors that the Israelites are rebuilding this temple and that they're doing it to kind of start an uprising. So he goes, oh, you guys have got to stop that. So they stop that. We go to the next king, which is uh, Xerxes. Now, Xerxes there. I don't know who the other one was. Now, Xerxes, does anyone recognize that name, the name Xerxes? Only from like the greatest movie ever created, isn't it? 300. Now, Xerxes, he was actually king at this time. This is the same Xerxes who ends up fighting the 300 Spartans. And this person here is the people who most likely they think Esther was the one who, who married this Xerxes. Now, whenever I kind of grew up hearing the story of Esther, I just thought it was a bit of a random... I wasn't the biggest fan of that story, to be honest. But I just thought, you know, she went to the king and married a king. Oh, no, that's hard. But when you, you see who Xerxes was, Xerxes was a terrifying man. He didn't look pierce, like have piercings and everything like that, but he was a terrifying man. There were stories of this Xerxes where he led... One of his captains took a whole group of ships across the Mediterranean Sea and a storm comes up, right? And it's going to sink all the ships. So the captain who's in charge of these group of ships, he throws all the cargo overboard in order to save um, Xerxes' fleet. They end up getting back to Iran or Persia, and Xerxes meets him on the beach, and the guy kneels down. Xerxes gives him a crown saying, you've, you've saved my fleet. I thank you for that. And next second turns around and chops his head off saying, you've made me lose everything. So this guy, is, he's not like a nice guy. This guy's a nutcase. Uh, Xerxes. He's a real crazy guy. And so when we then see how Esther is able to approach Xerxes, who's already got in his mind that he's going to kill the Jewish people, that is bravery at its best. That is courage. That Esther is able to... And, and not only that, but it works. She ends up being queen or one of his uh, concubines, whatever it is, to the, the king of Persia, the greatest superpower of the day. God is with the Israelites. He is with them this whole time. This shouldn't be happening. The people should have been wiped out. And then we finally get to Nehemiah as the people are beginning to go back to Jerusalem and Nehemiah hears about the hard time, about the, the ruins that they found in Jerusalem. What's Nehemiah's first response? His first response is he starts quoting scripture. These people shouldn't have scripture to quote. The Babylonians should have wiped that out a long time ago. But still, God has been there and he's still with his people. The that, that they still have. The, it's just amazing seeing how God is with his people over this time when they're in captive in Babylon and Persia. So now we finally move on to the chapter that I was supposed to be talking about. Now this is Nehemiah chapter 3. If anyone says they've read the whole of Nehemiah chapter 3, I don't know if I'd believe them. It's quite a... It's basically just a verse that lists off all the people who have um, list of all the people who have um, gone back to Jerusalem to start building the walls. So you got this person, the son of this person, built this part of Jerusalem. This person, the son, built this part of Jerusalem. It goes on and on and on. When I first got given this chapter, I thought everyone was laughing at me, giving me this time <laughs> to talk on. So that's the city of Jerusalem there that the, that the Israelites went back to rebuild. And I found this part here, which is kind of a map of Jerusalem we've got there. Um, with the people who built it. Now, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I've picked out a few different people and a few different parts of Jerusalem that they built, and we're just going to focus on those for a little bit. So the first person I want to look at is the guy down there. Can you guys see the name of the gate that Malkijah built? The Dungate? Man, 
Lucky. <laughs> so what was the dung gate? The dung gate was a place where obviously dung was put just outside the city there. That dung was either used for, um, for fuel, for, la for lanterns or for things like that. So they think it was possibly for that or it was possibly for um, like all the, like the burnt remains of the sacrifices that had happened at the temple. They got put out there. So either way, this dung gate was not going to be smelling very good at all. And often when it's for us, when we're looking at changing this to us and us building the church, often we have to do these Dungate jobs, don't we? It's not all in the line. It's not all amazing and, and at the front building the church, but often we have to go and do these parts which are the hard work. I remember when we first started this church here, I was 11, and I'd be there with Dad to start with lifting. Do you remember who was at the beginning of Parramatta School Hall? And we had these giant seats like this we had to carry for ages around from these classrooms back to the main school hall. It was Dungate work, wasn't it? It was hard work. I remember when I was in Cambodia, um, if you've been to that part of the world, Southeast Asia, you'll often find that the toilets do not take toilet paper because it blocks up the toilets down there. So one part of my job was on Tuesday mornings, I used to have to go back to the church and me and two other guys would clean the church. And so instead of toilet paper, what people would use is they'd wipe their bottoms or do their whatever they're doing and it'd get thrown in this night, a bit like that plastic bin down there. It would get thrown in this plastic bin. And one of my jobs was I got the, the awesome job of, of cleaning out these little plastic bins. Man, it was dung job, a dung job doing that. But it was all part of building it, wasn't it? It was all part of building the church, all part of building Jerusalem. When we were over there, we knew a couple called uh, Steve and Molly, who were some of the head guys for uh, Iris, which uh, Iris is a um, kind of a big kind of missionary cross-cultural team that they do stuff all over the world. Um, and so we knew this couple from Iris in Cambodia called Steve and Molly, and uh, I remember they were amazing. They were so inspiring, this couple. And I remember we were at a conference with them one time, and I saw uh, Molly walk off looking really upset. So I said to Steve, I said, what's wrong with Molly? And he goes, oh, well, God's just called us to move into a slum for the next three months. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, that is hard. And you know, when we look at movies and stuff, and we see all these, always, always Westerners, eh? amazing Westerners working into slums. And, um, you know, it's almost like a romanticized thing about it, isn't it? Where, you know, they do this and then they save the slum and it's amazing and they're the hero. But man, slums are not beautiful places. They, they, what you can get across on movies is the smell of those places. When we were doing work in one of those slums, there was like an open sewer that went, ran through the back of the slum. And so one of the things we used to do is play football with the kids and guess where the football would always go? straight in this open sewer. And so the kids, they were used to it. They would be happy as they go, get it, and throw it at you. And you'd, you'd stop it with your hands. The ball would hit your hands, but all the poo and yumness would just go <laughs> against you. Man, it was... So for Steve and Molly, they were doing a real Dungate job, but they felt cool to it because it was part of building Jerusalem, part of building the church. And it's not easy. I remember finding Molly, and she was saying, man, this is what Steve has felt God call us to. I'm not happy about it, she was saying, but if God's calling us... To that, then that's what we've got to get on with. I remember talking to them and saying, they're saying, well, would you guys ever move out to Cambodia? And I said, you know, I, you know, I just struggle at the moment because I've got so many, um, there's so much about the West that I love, you know, my comfy bed at home and it's very hot here and, you know, I just struggle with that. And I remember Steve going, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, we're, with us moving into this slum, I was like, you don't know what, like, you guys are so much further ahead. I, we're just talking about me moving country. You guys are going to be moving into a slum. Like, those guys really put in that Dungate kind of, 
kind of were. And we, have, we do have Dungate jobs in this church, don't we? We have jobs that no one wants to do. Dungate jobs such as crash, which is literally Dungate jobs in crash. <laughs> but one of the jobs that is a real Dungate job in this church is to set up and pack down. That is a hard job. And the people who do that, man, massive respect to the people in this church who do the setup on the pack down. They're here before anyone. They're the last people to leave. The family time that they sacrifice to be here and do that, that is a Dungate job, set up and pack down. But you know what? People realize that there's something, building something bigger than that, and they begin to build the walls of Jerusalem through their Dungate job. So if, you're in the, if you are one of those people, we really thank you for that. Another group of people that are building the wall is we've got Hananiah. Now, Hananiah, his job is he's a perfume maker. Now, when I think of people on building sites building, I imagine Matty P or other builders here. How often do you get perfume makers coming to your site to help, to help join in? Probably not. Bad. <laughs> yeah. Not very often. So perfume makers, they're not builders. They're completely underqualified for the job of helping to rebuild Jerusalem. And probably with it, they'd probably have a real... They might even feel ashamed with the things that they were doing because they might see the people who were the real builders, the, the, like Matty P, the fine specimen of men who walked past with the big muscles to help build the wall. But perfume makers probably didn't have that same kind of physique for doing that. They probably felt a real shame maybe about them. And shame is one of the, the biggest killers in the world for trying to help build things, isn't it? For anything we do, if we feel shame, we can't do it. Um, I currently am learning te reo Māori, and what they say about learning te reo Māori is they kind of say that it's a mountain, that once you get to the top of this mountain, that's when you're amazing and you're fluent and you can speak this language. But down at the bottom of this mountain, you have two tanifa that live there, one being māngari and one being whakamā. So one of them is laziness and the other one is shame. And there's a real shame for, for, to be embarrassed about trying to speak the language and, um, in case you get it wrong all the time. And it's a big hindrance to learning to speak the language. At one of my first ever uh, Māori lessons, my tutor, what she said to me was, she said, if you're here in your Pākehā, then there's a possibility that you feel quite shamed with what you're doing and speaking the language. Because, you know, you, it's hard for you to pronounce words. You're not used to the pronunciation. You might not know some of the words that the other Māori students in the class know. So there's a shame with that. But she's also said, if you're Māori, then you probably feel even more shamed. Because there's a thing that maybe this is something that you should know, and there's a real loss there. And so shame is a real killer to, to, to building the walls and building the church. And there might be people here this morning who feel, I'm not, I'm not qualified for this. I'm not qualified to do anything here. Who am I? I'm just nobody. You might be newly a, a new Christian. I don't know anything. These people know their Bible so well. I don't know anything. And there can be a real shame that ties us down to that. But what happens later on in chapter 7, we learn that because of all these people who put in their effort to build the wall, that the wall was built in 52 days. It was built quick. And the perfume makers had a big part to play in that. Look at that. that is the, part, the red part there is the part of the wall that the perfume makers build. And it is definitely, look how small these parts are that these people done. Tiny little parts. But the perfume makers done a good, quite a big part of the wall there, haven't they? That they really put down and worked to work on it. The next people that I want to talk about is the people who did build these tiny little parts. Now when you read through uh, that uh, Nehemiah 3, you see that you've got Azariah there, uh, and uh, this guy, Ezra there, and a few of these other guys. And what they did is the part of the wall that they built was that they built the part of the wall that was just outside their own homes. And you think, that's a bit cheeky of them, that they weren't ready to go, go around the city and help to build in the rest of it. But if we were to look 
and say that building the city was more than just for us as a church, but for us as, like, globally as churches building the city. There are some people there who are called to build at home, aren't there? There are people, if you're from uh, Wellington, there are people here who are called to build in Wellington. And that's good. That's a really amazing and good calling to have to build where you are. But then there are also people who are called to build away from where they are, and those people are called to the different nations. Uh, and kind of for us as a church, it's not just about them, us kind of building uh, away in different nations, but it's about nations being able to come amongst us and be able to build amongst us and help us build amongst us. I've actually asked uh, Deli and Esther to come and share um, just about, these guys are amazing. I just want to give amazing honor to Deli and Esther. Um, so, yeah, so often, so often we've been talking, we think, man, you guys have been so amazing to stick with us through our multicultural journey and we're so undeserved of having you guys here but it's great seeing the heart you guys have for the church and to see the church built so if you guys want to come forward I'd love to get you guys just to, to share thank you it's a wonderful privilege also to be part of uh, such an amazing uh, group of people uh, so we are also privileged um, when we, I came first, 2012, and um, I, on Sunday, my, my boss uh, was the one that um, received me at the airport, so I said I wanted to go to church. And he said, oh, there's a Catholic church just down Willow Street. I said, no, I'm not going to a Catholic church. I didn't actually realize he was a Catholic. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> So, but it was kind enough to introduce me to Steve Wilshire. Steve Wilshire introduced me to Simon Curry, and that's how I got to. So, from the very first day, um, I felt welcome. People received me. I was very happy, and I was telling my wife, there's one woman, uh, Mama Mariam, she's always saying, go and bring your wife, go and bring your wife. Yeah, so I said, that's how uh, um, very nice these people are. But um, talking of building the, building the wall and building the church, uh, Definitely, sometimes it's difficult to love, right? It's difficult to love, but it's not loving itself that, the pro- that is the problem, but the enemy that is behind it, loving. The Bible says the enemy has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. John 10.10. 10. Why? Because if you, the enemy does not want us to love one another so that he can attack our salvation. You see? So you see someone different, and you see their opinions different, and you don't want to go close to them. If you look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says, if uh, whoever that does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see? So we thank God for the kind of love that you have shown us. It just shows that um, you know God. And um, I want to say thank you for that. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Um, when we came to this church, um, Blossom and I, in uh, six years ago, rough, nearly now, um, it was quite evident quite quickly that some particular people struggled to relate. And um, for some, it was very obvious. For others, it was quite subtle. And for some others, they took to us like bees to honey. And um, I'll, ma- I'll give an example of a particular individual who I noticed that she, 
it was very it was very obvious in her case that for some reason she just struggled to relate with me for us where we come from greeting is a big thing so i would always go to her and say my greeting they just say hello you know find out how her week has been and it was very obvious that to relate and um just be herself or be normal or be like a sister was hard something that was hard for her and she struggled with it i kept doing that because that's something i've grown up and used to doing but after a while i decided i'm gonna step back because i mean if you're showing you care about someone and, and you step away you want to see if they do the same about you and if they don't then you know you want to be sure where you're standing so i kept away for a few weeks and i noticed that you know nothing happened and they were kind of avoiding me and even when i stand maybe for example in a conversation with someone and she wanted to talk to the person she would just literally say hello hug the person and just ignore me and i'll be thinking um invisible maybe yeah maybe i'm invisible because she would literally ignore me after a few weeks i thought just for me to be clear with what i'm st where i'm standing with god i'm gonna go to her so after service i went to her and i said I just feel like I really want to give you a hug. And I said, is that okay? She said, yes, it's all right. So I gave her a hug. But the look on her face afterwards was like, what was that about? But I wanted to be clear that I had nothing in my mind grudgingly against her. But um, I noticed that her case was one of the, like, the extreme ones. I must say that over the years, though, people have moved, have moved on. They've gotten better. And I want to really say that as God was working on individuals here in the church, he was working on us as well. We're work in progress. Some people who really struggled have opened up. They've gotten better. We've been accepted and we feel loved. And the reason why we've kept on, we kept coming, that we were sure that this is where God wanted us to be, us to be. We were secure in the fact that he's our father and he loves us and he owns this church. So we kept on. And I would say it's paid off. We feel like this is our church, and we are among family, and we give God the praise for that. The church that we're called to build is also a multicultural church, isn't it? It's a church where every nation can come and build, because we need every nation. It's not a want, it's a need. It's something we've said time and time again. I remember coming back from Cambodia, talking to Delhi and Esther and saying, look, do you guys feel any kind of racial prejudice against you in our church? And they said, honestly, Sam, yes, we do. And that broke my heart to hear that come from the church. And since then, we've been going on this journey, haven't we, as a church, of discovering the things about us, this ethnocentric sense where everybody in the world, it's a, a scientific fact that everyone in the world is ethnocentric. They judge other cultures compared to their own. And usually we say that the other culture is less significant than our own. But being aware of that, we begin to change that about us, haven't we? Just being aware and putting value in other cultures. I was so... One of the biggest testimonies to me is that I had that conversation with Delia and Esther four years ago, and you know, a month or so ago, when Nat was uh, eldered, we had Esther sing her song, and the whole church just be in awe of this amazing song that she sung in her own, uh, one of the Nigerian languages. I think that is a testimony to what God is doing amongst us as a, as a multicultural church, isn't it? Not only that, we had uh, Francis pray out in, in his Zimbabwean language, we had Jan pray out in Dutch with no translation, which I thought was quite exciting, that he was just felt free to be able to pray out in Dutch. And we also had a strong Māori part in the gifts that we gave to Nat as well. I thought, God, you are good. You are helping us to build this multicultural church. It's beginning, and it's, yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> now, 
I'll get uh, Jack to come up in a sec if he can, holding the holding baby. But I just want to look back quickly again over the history that I've given and to see what God had done at that time. Knowing that this is not just history, this is our whakapapa, this is our story, and that God will continue to do that in us today. When the Israelites were taken to Babylon, they should have lost everything. For a, cult, for a people to capture another people, that, that is, that's pretty much the end of that people group, it should be. They should have lost the language, they should have lost the faith, they should have lost everything. But God was faithful through that time. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego immediately put into a position of power in Babylon. Just like, it, it's God. How that, that happened, that immediately the same king who took rid of them in order to destroy the Jewish people put them in this amazing position of power. Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the fire and they survive and, you know, God is glorified. Every attempt of the enemy to destroy them was not the end. The, the, the beginning of that story, Nebuchadnezzar builds this golden statue, bow down to me there, and they refuse to do it. But God is glorified through it. God is glorified. He never forgot those people. Darius tries to stop it again by saying, no more praying to God, you're going to pray to me now. The enemy is trying to wipe out the, the people of Israel. But God had promises from them since the beginning, didn't he? Promises that they will impact nations. Esther becomes queen. Why? How does a Jewish person become queen or a concubine to Xerxes when he's trying to kill off the Jewish people? Like, this just doesn't make sense. When we look at what has happened with how when Pākehā came to New Zealand at the loss of the Māori language, how is it that the Jewish people still had it? How is that? When so much of Māori culture was destroyed and taken away in that short time period, but in another time period, God was faithful to the Jews, to the Israelites. How has that happened? It's because God had promised for them. This is our whakapapa church. This is where we come from. Lawrence had a, had a dream which is amazing. Now, if you don't know Lawrence, Lawrence, when, when Lawrence speaks, we've really got to listen to what he says. <laughs> He's a prophetic man. <laughs> now, I love it. You know, you hear that, um, what's that old saying, that um, uh, you, a boy is, uh, you raise a child, a village, it takes a village to raise a child, doesn't it? So this is the village that I was raised in, and I was raised by people like Lawrence Collingborn, who Sunday after Sunday would come to me and say, Sam, encouraging, encouraging, prophetic words for me. Even in the UK, we've got memories in the UK together when we'd go on holiday, constantly encouraging me. And this is one of those men, and we've seen him, and some of the prophetic words that this guy's bring, man, they're amazing. And this is one, he had a dream, it's called, I had a dream last night. I want you to imagine a world in which ten generations stand on the shoulders of those who go before them. It's a world where each generation embraces the revelation given before and then goes further. Where each generation embraces their elders with honour and takes with them as they go forward. Where each generation gladly makes way for the next and urges them onwards. I want you to imagine what a revival like that in Wales would look like if there was not just one week where the courts were closed, when the joy and fear of God descended upon the whole nation, but that was built on for ten generations. Imagine the songs the choirs would sing. I want you to imagine a world where secretarian divisions such as Northern Ireland and the Korean Peninsula is not just finally too much so that hurt and hatred starts to heal, but where that peace and reconciliation is taken from there to other nations. I want you to imagine a world in which every earthquake and natural disaster is an opportunity for communities to rebuild something better than what went before for everyone and not just for personal gain. 
A world where the vulnerable are no longer used and abused, but embraced and brought into families and communities who love them and bring them healing and restoration. A world where you don't need to steal or fight so you can eat or drink or live in warmth and shelter or a satisfying work to provide for your family or have a community you belong to with mana and tūranga waiwai because you are welcomed and equipped with love, generosity and truth. Because if you can imagine such a world then you can receive the promise I gave your father Abraham that the whole world will be blessed through you. You can receive the kingdom my son came to establish. You can taste and see what the kingdom of God on earth looks like. For I tell you that my purpose is to establish a church that is so full of love, faith, humility, generosity, authenticity, power, joy, peace, worship, love, and reverent awe that such a world is built. My purpose is to establish my throne and presence among you so even the streets of your neighborhoods become places of repentance, forgiveness, healing, and worship where the sick come to be healed, where the broken come to be transformed, where the wicked come to repentance, where the righteousness and generosity is celebrated, where joy and peace is a tangible experience, and where Jesus is worshipped in awe and wonder. For I tell you, I am building an authentic church which does not just know the truth, but has the joy of it in their hearts. I am building a church which is not just saved, but which serves the unsaved in generosity, faith and humility. I am building a church that takes five loaves and two fish and feeds thousands of the hungry. I am building a church that brings healing to all who seek it. I am building a church which looks as irresistibly gorgeous as the bride my son will marry. For my purpose is to bring heaven to earth. My plan is that greater things are done here than Jesus showed you can be done. My plan is that you devote yourselves to receive the promise of Abraham and be my friends who build on what has gone before to go further again until Jesus comes again. For this is not just for you, but your children's children for generations.